The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate Sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, Trader Tracks is really a letter that is more geared towards the commodities markets, the futures markets, uh, whereas Chen Lin's letter is more geared towards the uh, towards the equity markets, uh, but very special situations that Chen finds and has done extremely well for himself as well as for his subscribers over the years. We do have a special introductory offer uh, for those of you who would like to try uh, any or all of those letters, each separately, I might add, but you uh, can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York at 718-457-1426, 718 or go to Mining Stocks. Dot com that's miningstocks.com to sign up directly for uh, those newsletters. I also like to remind you that the best website to go to for all of what I do, uh, including those newsletters, you can get to those as well, uh, is uh, J Taylor Media. That's J A Y, my first name, TaylorMedia.com. There you can access easily this radio show and uh, all three of those newsletters, as well as uh, various uh, appearances on television and the media that uh, that I make. Um, I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for the first hour of today's show are Eurostar Gold Corp., Liberty Silver Corp., and Arroway Energy, Inc., and we will be talking to the CEO of Arroway Energy, Inc. Uh, after the first commercial break today. Uh, also want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel uh, by a pretty sizable margin, and we're very proud of that. We however, want to keep trying to bring uh, ideas that can help you survive in this uh, period of time when it's becoming increasingly difficult for people who actually work for a living as opposed to those who vote for a living to survive. How do you do it in an environment, a socialistic environment, an environment in which hard work and capitalism is being thrown out the window in favor of, um, let's say, 
uh, voting for a living, and we're speaking of voting for a living right now, especially as we think about the upcoming presidential elections and the Republicans starting their convention uh, now. We are going to be talking to Jeff Dice at the very end of this show about uh, the role his boss, Ron Paul, will be playing at the convention and going forward into uh, uh, the political arena, especially as it pertains to the Gold Commission that the Republicans say they will uh, commission. Uh, well, we we will see about that. Uh, we'll ask Jeff about that. Uh, we also uh, will be talking, as I said, to Chris Coopy. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris Cooper. Uh, name is very similar to another Chris uh, CEO that we talked to. Chris Cooper uh, of Airway Energy. We'll be talking to him in a little while. Um, but it is true that this process that we have now of inflation, essentially through the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, is robbing us of our wealth through the debasing of the currency. And so how do we protect ourselves against that? Well, of course, one of the most obvious ways to do that, and the one that we talk about most often, is to own real money, that is gold and silver. Those are asset-based monies as opposed to a liability money, which is what the government is forcing us to use, the liability money, which they can create endless amounts of, and in that way, rob each and every one of us of the value that we gain through the hard work uh, that we do uh, every day. Now, and so it is discouraging to investing and working, and that is, of course, one of the main themes of this show. It is also important uh, to understand the role that politics plays uh, in the future in the direction of, of the monetary system, for sure, and uh, whether or not we move towards free market economics uh, back towards that or whether we're going to continue to stray towards a very destructionist, uh, do, uh, uh, say, socialistic model or fascist model that we seem to be heading towards uh, right now. Today we are going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk to Alana Mercer, who will provide some some history, really, uh, more based in South Africa, but it's but it's history and politics that really are apropos, I think, to what's going on in America and elsewhere around the world. There are certain things in the world, uh, certain uh, policies that uh, that are destructive and others that are constructive. Um, in the post-apartheid regime in South Africa, though, uh, Alana talks about property rights and the rule of law. What has happened to them in a post-apartheid uh, South Africa? Has it gotten worse than it was before? Uh, we'll ask her about that, and, and what, if any, connection does uh, the post-apartheid politics play into uh, the uh, the murder, the the killing of 34 strikers, mine strikers, in a platinum mine in South Africa? I uh, will be talking to her about the dynamics of increasing violence in South Africa, and also talk to her about the repercussions uh, for America and the West in general. What is higher uh, taxes? either through inflation or through direct taxation, but a loss of respect for property and the rights of the individual. And uh, that is certainly something that we're seeing increasingly, of course, and one of the battles of, between the two political parties. The Republicans seem to be more inclined to want to hang on to property rights, uh, although they continue to move towards socialism as well. Uh, and they don't seem to have any understanding, uh, with the exception of Ron Paul, that printing money by the Fed is a way of destroying property rights as well. Uh, and, of course, if you are on the leading edge and you are working on Wall Street, you can actually gain from this scheme of printing money and uh, stealing from those that really create wealth, the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, the farmers. Those are the people, I think, um, that really do create wealth. And the bankers 
uh, and the politicians redistribute wealth from the pockets of those that create it to themselves. Uh, that's a simplistic view, of course, but I believe uh, that is very much what's going on. And one of the reasons the ruling elite does not want to go back to a gold standard because it would certainly disrupt that. Well, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to uh, what Alana has to tell us uh, about, uh, and we will definitely draw on her excellent book, Into the Cannibal's Pot, uh, which I think is a must-read for anybody who's serious and wants to understand. It is very, very deep. Um, there's so much There's so much in that book. Uh, if you're a serious thinker, I think you need to read it. But, for example, she talks about another issue that I, that I believed uh, there's some merit to, and that has to do with the declining faith in the Judeo-Christian God. Uh, if you uh, do not believe in a higher being, a supreme being that's in charge and uh, that is uh, there to take care of you, then who do you look to? Well, you look to Caesar, you look to Obama, or you look to Bush, or you look to some powerful human being. And all we really have to do is look around and look at history a little bit to realize uh, that's a pretty scary proposition to, to trust other human beings to take care of us. Um, so... We're going to also, as I mentioned, talk to Jeff Dice towards the end of the show today. Uh, specifically, I want to talk to Jeff most uh, most about the uh, the Gold Commission that uh, the Republicans say they will establish. I guess if um, Mr. Romney wins the presidency, uh, I would guess that Ron Paul is going to be active about uh, with re- uh, that Ron Paul is going to continue to be active uh, with respect to uh, moving back towards free market economics, which, of course, at its very core. Uh, is an honest monetary system. You know, we uh, even when you think about it, uh, one half of all the transactions we make are based on a dis- dishonest uh, unit of measure, that is, the dollar. Well, how can you have a free market economy if what you have is a bastardized currency? And that's really what I think we have, a currency that has no legitimacy uh, whatsoever, other than the fact that the guns of the government re- uh, say that it is uh, legitimate. Um, well, was that uh, so? Several questions for Jeff. Was the uh, is the idea of going to a gold commission to uh, placate um, people that might be Ron Paul fans who don't like uh, the Republicans in general? Try to get some votes there. Uh, will the commission amount to anything? Uh, will Ron Paul play a role uh, in the uh, in the uh, selection of the committee members, which I think is most important because. It was uh, the last commission we had was under Ronald Reagan, and in fact, uh, that commission, uh, uh, the, the members were chosen by Anna Schwartz and Milton Friedman, and they stacked the death deck in favor of the bankers, which of course hated gold. There was no way that that commission was going to come out in favor of a gold standard, but Ron Paul and Louis Lehrman, who we've had on this show together, were the two members of that commission who actually came out in favor of uh, returning to some sort of a gold standard. Well, Ron has said he is not in favor of mandating a gold standard, but simply allowing gold to compete with uh, with the currency, with the dollar, with the paper dollar, and then uh, let the markets decide. Uh, we are going to go to break in just a couple of minutes, but I would like to mention a couple of things in my newsletter that I think are extremely exciting. First of all, we are looking at a better market right now for the junior gold mining companies, and I think for the resource sector in general. Uh, one of the companies that is really an outstanding performer on my list is called GoldQuest Mining Corp. And it's selling at $1.68 today, but it's up from $0.08 cents to start the year. They have made what looks like it could be a very major discovery in the Dominican Republic. So four phenomenal drill holes uh, trending east and west. Uh, north and south, the drill holes have not been as spectacular, uh, and there may be some limits 
uh, now being defined by that drilling uh, on a north-south basis. But the east-west basis looks extremely exciting. Looks to me like we could be on to a very major winner uh, with GoldQuest Mining, and I do think there's a lot of upside from here. And I'll be talking about GoldQuest in my newsletter. Uh, last week I mentioned and highlighted Eurasian Minerals as a top pick because that's a stock that I think uh, has great upside potential. Uh, it's a model that I really uh, admire and think is the best model for the junior mining sector. They are the project generator model, but they now have, with the acquisition of Bullion Monarch, they have uh, some $6 million coming in the door every year from the royalties of Bullion Monarch. Uh, they have uh, Newmont Mining Company, a major shareholder, spending huge dollars uh, in quest of finding a major deposit, and I think the odds favor Eurasian minerals being successful sooner or later without a lot of dilution, which is the thing that really kills most junior mining company investors. Also mentioned last week on my newsletter, Dynacor, that company raised, uh, price went up 19% last Friday on better-than-expected production numbers. And this is a company that constantly under-promises and over-performs. Dynacor selling at around $0.80, cents, I think, is a very, very good uh, story for the long term. Very cash flow positive and also a company that uh, has great growth prospects. Uh, and I also uh, recommended Blue Sky Uranium last week as a uh, as uh, a new recommendation in my letter. They are a company with very few shares outstanding, very uh, a very low burn rate, and Arriva, the major vertically integrated French nuclear power company, is spending a fair amount of money to try to outline a major deposit. But this little company is selling at $0.12, cents, has a very low number. I mean, it's got a $2 million market cap, something like that. I think its chances of finding a very sizable deposit is very good. Uh, no guarantees, of course. It's very speculative, but it looks like one that is uh, that has a really good chance. Well, cash flow positive is a, a term, a phrase I like very much. I like companies, especially in this kind of market, that is cash flow positive. And we're going to be speaking to Chris Cooper uh, right after the break. We're going to go to break now. Chris Cooper is the CEO of Airway Energy. That's a growing oil and gas producer in Alberta. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Cooper. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.euristargold.com for more information. Is your business ready to get started in social media? If you've already made that plunge, where do you stand right now? Are you using it to stay ahead of your competition? Or are you feeling a bit lost? Tune in to Social Media Pearls with host Shirley Williams. Shirley and her guest experts are here to answer your questions as well as focus on areas where you should have questions. It's everything you've always wanted to know about using social media for business. It's Social Media Pearls, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, for a second time Chris Cooper. He's the president and CEO of Airway Energy. It's a company that trades in Toronto, and you can also buy it in the U.S. under the symbol ARWJF. That's on the -the over-the-counter market. Uh, Symbol in Toronto is ARW. 54.3 million shares outstanding and trading in the 55 to 57 cent range. Uh, giving it a market cap of just uh, around $30 million only. And uh, the company is very profitable. It uh, generated uh, cash flows of uh, 2.59 or just call it $2.6 million during the first nine months of this year, and it uh, also earned some $0.06 cents a share. Welcome, Chris, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thanks for having me, Jay. Uh, really good to have you back. Um, I have to ask you, really, what are your views on the energy markets in general? We see oil near... Around $96, and I think I saw a natural gas price of around $3, $3.11 or something like that. Uh, what, what do you see for oil, and then uh, do we see some prospects of, of higher prices for natural gas anytime soon? Uh, well, I've always been very bullish on oil. Um, when the price of oil dipped down into the 70s, well, I guess I think it might have been you know, the last two months or so, um, I was getting a lot of calls from shareholders you know, when, are you going to are you going to shut in your oil? What are you going to do? And, you know, <laughs> I kind of I, I chuckled that off, but um, I'm always bullish on oil. You know, it's a depletable resource. We need it. Um, people can jump up and down and say, "Oh, well, we're going to go to wind power, solar power," and, and realistically, that's just not going to happen. The world thrives on oil. Um, the consumption is 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 crazy. So. Uh, I'm I'm quite bullish on oil. I, I had no doubt in my mind that oil would be back up in the 90s, in the you know mid to, to uh, high 90s, and I wouldn't even be surprised if we, you know, we kiss 100 bucks again. So I'm very bullish on oil. Um, you know, you, you you mentioned the three dollar natural gas price. That you know that's probably the NYMEX, but you know we're producing in Alberta, and uh, we received the the ACO spot price, which you know, currently is around two dollars. So we uh, wow. we're at quite a big discount to what the uh, the NYMEX is at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I'm not sure if we mentioned if I mentioned this to you when we and I was last on the show, but we did shut in about 200 BOE a day of our our natural gas production just because, you know, it's you know we have some pretty big gas reservoirs that we're we're excited about, and we don't really want to deplete them at those levels where we can maximize our revenue at uh, you know a palatable price for us would be in the Three dollar and fifty to four dollar range. Mm. Well, that uh, that's what you would need to see to start selling that natural gas. That'd be a nice kicker for your earnings, though, wouldn't it be? Because that would be a great Even though oil is, and, is a bigger part of your production, still you've shut in two hundred BOEs a day of natural gas. That would have been quite nice if you could have gotten four dollars for that. That would have been great, and you know we can produce that gas a lot cheaper than 
um, a lot of company, junior companies in the area because our joint venture partner, again, they, they control the infrastructure in the area and the gas gathering plant. So we can get it on production for very cheap and we don't have to pay the high transportation costs and, and you know, a lot of the uh, costs that are associated with bringing that gas into production. Yeah, that's a very important aspect, that infrastructure and pipeline capacity. Uh, well, you know, talk of shutting in oil at $70, what is your cost? What, is your, what do you figure your, your all-in cost is uh, for the oil that you sell on the market, including well, we run our we run our numbers um, based on a $90 price um, for oil, and uh, we net back about $55 on that. Wow, okay. That gives us some idea, then, of what your cost is. So... You, uh, I mean, the oil sands is a different story. What do you, sort of generally, what do you think their cost is uh, for production? Oh, in the oil sands, it's, um, yeah, they, their production, it, that's a, a tremendously big operation. So, you know, I, it's a tough question. I, I don't think I could give you a, a solid answer on that, but I can guarantee it's a lot more than, um, you know, the, their, their netbacks are not as good as ours. They're, you know, I think they're relying on a $90 they need a $90 price or, or a little bit less just to break even, I believe. But, again, that's, um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't have a lot of information on their, their net backs and whatnot. Well, it's an important, I think it's probably for investors, it's an important question because if, uh, if you can produce oil at uh, $45 or something like that um, and it's costing them 60 or 70 and they're producing a good portion of the world's, uh, at least of North America's needs right now, then... Um, you know, then that's that's an issue, isn't it? I mean, if it it, it, it sort of puts a floor under, it might put a floor under a certain price, I suppose, at some point. Um, in any event, so that so it's a very profitable operation, and you do have growth prospects. Talk to us a little bit. You, you, uh, in terms of pipeline capacity, how much bigger can you get? Uh, we have we have lots of pipeline capacity. You know, we're. Um that that's not never going to be an issue for us. Um, you know, as far as growth going goes, uh, we just um, completed drilling three wells that we had previously announced. Um, I expect to have results uh, released on those wells next week. Um, you know, we're we're 100% oil focused right now, as I'd, uh, as we'd mentioned in the past, um, and we had we sh- we shot a really nice 3D seismic program. Uh, last year, and that uh, really brought a lot of new prospects to the table for us to drill. Um, we've also gone to a few land sales, which um, have been very good for us. So we've got uh, some some upcoming um, results on, on on our latest drilling, and then uh, we're going to be back uh, drilling again here shortly, probably in the beginning of October. I noticed that you just announced the third well. Third well was drilled. What what can you tell us about the drilling program so far? Well, we've gone ahead and drilled um, three wells, and, uh, you know, I, we just uh, finished our testing probably, I think, in the last, we'll, we'll probably finish on over the weekend. Um, you know, the drilling's gone very well. Uh, again, all, the, all our, all our um, prospects have been 3D seismically defined prospects. Um, we're really looking and focusing on, um, kind of our lower risk development um, type wells where that we can that we feel we could probably drill them for a half a million dollars growth and uh, get them onto production right away and um, we're really focusing on building our uh, building our cash flow especially in you know these turbulent markets that we've experienced over the last couple of months we've been very fortunate that we've uh, we're generating cash flow and 
and we're not out going to the market, um, you know, having to raise money. And uh, I just I wanted to mention as well. Um, you mentioned that we had about 54.3 million shares outstanding, but you know, we we instituted a uh, normal course issuer bid, and we announced uh, last month that. You know, although it's not a lot of shares, we've bought back about 300,000 shares in the market. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, we do have some spare cash for that. And, you know, we're, we're somewhat active in the market. We, if we notice there's a weakness in our share price and it's come off and we think it's a good buying opportunity, we'll step in and buy, buy some shares. But, uh, you know, we, um, we're pretty proud of the fact that we uh, do have that extra cash that we can do that, and we think it benefits our shareholders long-term. Mm-hmm. Well, you uh, you have earned six cents a share during the first nine months of this year. Uh, that was ending March 31st, so your fiscal year end, I guess, is June 30th. When do you expect to announce your earnings for the year? Um, we're expected. Well, we've we've actually just kicked off the audit process, so um, we expect about mid to mid to late October is when uh, our deadline is. So I would I would suspect that you know. As soon as the statements are ready, um, probably by mid-October, I expect to announce our year-end results. And you mentioned your cost of, of drilling a well is around a half a million dollars. Uh, what sort of expectations do you have? And I guess these are these are high-probability success wells. I mean, they're not wildcats exactly, are they? Yes. Well, we generally we're we're chasing basically two formations and you know the shallower wells or which is something we call the triassic wells which a lot of the, the bigger companies our area in our area are drilling mm-hmm. um, they caught they're about 1400 meters they they cost about five hundred thousand um, dollars to drill case complete equip and tie in um, and you usually can get anywhere from uh, 120 barrels a day to you know on the high end 200 barrels a day gross Mm-hmm. We'd be fifty percent of that, um, but you know it's a for for the amount of money that you spend to get these wells on, and if they're you know if you're able to really define whether it's going to be a successful well by the well control in the area. But you know these these wells will pay off in sixty days, so it oh. really makes sense to go after these things. And then we also have the risky um, Leduc wells, which we which we've we've gone after, and you know they are all. Um, you're drilling down 22, 2300 meters. Um, they're, they're risky exploration wells, and you're not going to hit on all of them. So we, we try to just drill a couple of them uh, when we feel it's right. But uh, we're really focused on these shallower wells that will uh, bring us good, good steady cash flow. They'll pay back right away and, you know, and, and uh, help grow the cash flows of the company and the production. No, and um, in terms of your financial situation, you do have, I think you have a line of credit that you draw on from time to time? Yeah, we have, uh, we initially had a $4 million line of credit, and uh, a couple months ago we were increased to $7 million. Um, you know, we try not to draw on that, but, um, you know, if we're, if we're getting ahead in a development drill program and we need to, you know, take a half a million or a million dollars, we will draw on that line. And uh, we just pay it back immediately, usually about a month or a month and a half later. So, you know, it, it provides us with a lot of flexibility. Again, I'm not, uh, I'm not one to drill exploration, you know, risky exploration wells on debt. You know, that's one way you can bury your company pretty easily. Sure. Uh, it takes a couple of wells, and all of a sudden, you know, you're $3 million in the hole, and that would, that would hurt. <laughs> yeah. So um, and, and you know, we're, very, to... um, we're very... I disciplined in how we we draw on our debt, and uh, I think right now maybe we have 
you know, not even a million dollars drawn on our line of, line of credit right now. Right. With respect to those deeper, riskier wells, then uh, are you looking for a bigger payout on those? Yes. I mean, if you hit, I guess. Well, you know, the, the deeper and riskier the well, the bigger the reward. Um, but um, you know, they are. Uh, you know, geology is a funny thing, and you can do all the science you want, and have uh, you, you think you got it all figured out, and you can go down and, and drill these things, and uh, you know, you might get. A great well, or you could get uh, a dud, and um, we're pretty pretty disciplined again in the fact that we'll make sure that if we do think it's going to be a risky well, and if there is the odd chance that it's a dud, we can go up hole and complete the well in a shallower zone where we kind of call it a bailout zone, where we can actually get some uh, production out of that well. And albeit the economics may take longer for it to pay out, um, you know, we we'll, we'll make sure that it's not a dud. Sure. Uh, we're just about out of time here. In fact, uh, uh, we are out of time, but I have to ask you, you uh, were producing, I think, around 650 barrels of oil a day, uh, yes. and do you have projections or, or sort of a target of where you expect to get to by the end of uh, this fiscal year? Sure. Um, we set out a goal to exit uh, December 2012 at 1,200 BOE a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're... we're I'm still hoping that we can get there. I'm confident we can do that. It, it hurts a bit that we had to shut in our gas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's 200 BOE a day, which, uh, sure. you know, and we're having also to fill the gaps in our, you know, natural depletion of the oil wells. So, you know, we've got a pretty good program coming up, and, uh, you know, I'm pretty confident that uh, we can still reach that 1,200 BOE a day mark. So that's that's our goal, and uh, we met our goal for 2011, so I'm, we're really going to try to get there for 2012 as well. Well, if you can get there, uh, even with the shut-in gas, that'd be uh, that'd really be quite an achievement. And obviously, uh, your your earnings growth should be considerable as well, especially if you can stick to those kind of margins that you talked about earlier. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion today? Uh, well, we're just. <laughs> I hope to have some news out next week on our drilling program. And I, uh, Jay, I look forward to seeing you in Toronto uh, at the end of the month. Oh, good. You'll be in Toronto. Well, I'll see you there then, and and for sure, uh, make sure that I'm aware of the uh, the news for next week, and we'll uh, we'll announce it to our listeners next week. Okay, that sounds great. Well, thanks again for having me. Thank you very much, Chris, for being with us, folks. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with Alana Mercer. Uh, you're not going to want to miss what she has to say about what's going on uh, in South Africa and the inf- and the uh, the importance of that for our lives here in the United States as well. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Alana. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.eurostargold.com for more information. 
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, Insights. Call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for a second time Alana Mercer. She uh, describes herself as a classical liberal writer, uh, based and she's based here in the United States now. She uh, spent uh, a good part of her life, uh, if not all of her prior life, in South Africa. Uh, she pens WND's longest-standing uh, exclusive paleo-libertarian column uh, called Return to Reason, and Alana also features on uh, Russian television with the uh, Paleo Libertarian column. Alana, uh, uh, the Paleo Libertarian column, I should say. And Alana is a fellow uh, at the Jerusalem Institute for Market Studies and the author of Into the Cannibal's Pot: uh, Lessons for Americans from the Post-Apartheid South Africa. And that is uh, certainly one of the things we want to focus on today, for sure. Uh, she explains in the book that uh, that it's meant as a metaphor and is inspired by Ayn Rand's wise counsel against uh, prostrating civilization to savagery. Uh, Alana's website is alanamercer.com, uh, www.alanamercer.com, and she blogs at barelyablog.com. Welcome back, Alana, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, great to be with you, Jay. Good to be with you. Uh, I want to start out by telling our readers that your book, Into the Cannibal's Pot, is not only about South Africa, but as you suggest, it's also really has a lot to do with the dynamics of liberty versus tyranny everywhere. And I, and I believe this is really a great book, and I say that because in, in my way of thinking, literature is really something, uh, great literature stands the test of time, and it also provides a common bond uh, for humanity in general. And I believe that Cannibal's Pot will prove to stand the test of time, and uh, it already does, I think, provide some great insights into 
human behavior and uh, mm-hmm. the kind of politics that can lead to death and destruction, which is certainly so much of, unfortunately, what uh, uh, what your book is about. Um, yes, and the juxtaposition to the U.S. with its constitution of freedom uh, and its tradition of freedoms, that's, that's the inspiration of the book. And that's why I think it is important for Americans who are holding on to the vestiges of liberty, literally. Um, Absolutely, and I think Americans do not understand the basic foundation for liberty and the respect for human life. Life, uh, probably the most valuable thing that we have, is our, is our, our lives, and, uh, and property becomes a part of protecting that life, and absolutely. when your property isn't protected, your life is in danger. No, I think that is a, a great part of, of your human life. I mean, it's, there's so many themes in this book that are so important. There are, there are theological concepts that I've run into there, too, that I think are well, important. It's so kind of you to say it will stand the test of time. I believe so, but will people be able to stand the test of time? Well, that's another issue, isn't it? And, and I, I believe they will. Uh, it's a question, of course. In the meantime, many peoples, many groups of people, undergo enormous hardships, and most certainly that is occurring right now uh, in South Africa, as you mentioned. Now, before we come on uh, on the air, you mentioned there was an incident in 1960 that you wanted to talk about. Uh, go yes, ahead. And with I'm that. not. I'm not going to go off topic. Um, I know you want me to stay focused on the Marikana mine and the massacre there. Uh, near Rustenburg, northwest of Johannesburg, where I was born. Um, uh-huh. I was born in Johannesburg. Um, let, yes, let's flash back to March of 1960, because we keep hearing um, a repetition of, of the mention. They don't mention uh, Sharpeville Massacre, because that's too much like hard work. That's a fact, and you don't want to introduce that to your audiences if you are um, an American broadcaster, not named Jay Taylor, of course. Uh-huh. So... Um, they're referring to the, the the media is referring to a small band of panic-stricken policemen of the apartheid um, era, cops who I guess they have to refer to with the adjective of racist. Mm-hmm. We must not forget that. Um, and in 1960, I believe it was March, um, these cops shot dead 69 black demonstrators, and there is a public uh, commemoration in, in the New South Africa, and um, the Western pack animals of the press do not let us forget this. Um, however, let, let's look at those, uh, let's juxtapose the two incidences of Marikana and Sharpeville. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to the March 1960 Sharpeville massacre, nine white cops had been murdered, butchered, in Durban, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Prior to the Marikana massacre in, uh, at the Platinum Mine, the strikers, 3,000 of them, I believe, all sweetness and light, of course, had killed at least 10 individuals, mm-hmm. um, including two police officers yes. battered to death. I think you referred me to the Financial Post um, article on that. Um, two mine security guards were burnt alive, and a union shop steward was hacked to death. Um, of course, I don't want to go off topic. It's so easy uh, with, with this vast um, topic of South Africa, but there is a union underlying um, dynamic and current uh, to this whole um, dispute. Um, so my guess is that in contradiction to their deeply silly sympathizers in the West who don't scare fast enough, um, the strikers put the fear of God in the misguided folks who fired on them. Um, to no avail, the same law enforcement officers had tried tear gas, water cannon, um, sun grenades, what have you, even barbed wire, I believe. Um, so in the defense of these frightened and likely incompetent people, um, 
you'd have had to experience the onrush of a riled-up African crowd to comprehend the terror the police experienced. And I include here the mining operators and the nominal staff that still remained on the site. Mm -hmm. So the cops were obliged to protect these people who likely endured days of menacing, chanting, singing, stomping, um, all amplified through loudspeakers. And so let's cut back to 1960. Um, Mm -hmm. Likewise, uh, the small band of cops uh, at Sharpeville, uh, the law enforcement officers, were terrified and um, almost helpless as the unarmed mob advanced on their uh, isolated outpost. Um, The people, I think it was 5,000 or 7,000 protesters protesters in 1960 uh, breached the fences and although the cops back then tried um, you know to ward them off pangas spears and sticks are pretty menacing and they they uh, these are they you know the mob was accessorized with pangas spears sticks and the likes um, the western press likes to call that unarmed but um, you know, that's, uh, that, that's pretty menacing. And the cops back in 1960 also likewise fired. Of course, the same pack animals of the West have uh, already cut a great deal of slack to the black cops who were assailed by uh, the miners at uh, Marikana. Um, but the frightened, un- outnumbered honkies at Sharpeville, uh, who sat in this tiny post in front of these thousands of protesters, they've been condemned forever after and um, halls in front of the Truth Commission and so on, and um, they too tried to contain the demonstration with tear gas and batons before resorting to what was a terrible misguided shooting. But this is just to, to, to set the scene of, of, of Africa and what a, an African demonstration is like. Um, and likewise, I mean, you should ask the 800,000 Tutsis torn to pieces or macheted to death by Hutu neighbors. Uh, also by a so-called unarmed um, African mob. Um, you know, there's a lot you can do when you are armed with, with, with homemade weapons and you despise a helpless minority, as, as is often the case with factions in Africa. Yeah. And why not ask the, the rural South African farmers whom I, um, uh, whose plight I expound on, on in, uh, in the book, more than 4,000 of whom have been culled like, a, how should I say, a springbok on a hunting safari by often unarmed blacks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when a farmer is killed, often with the bare hands of, of um, you know, he's assailant and almost weakly, um, does, the far, does, does the press call the systematic murder? Of course not. Mm-hmm. They call it a labor dispute. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you have to really, and maybe perhaps we should, um, people are more likely to re- relate to Amy Beale. Um, you know, our listeners are likely to know who she was. She was torn to pieces by the same sort of unarmed mob. You remember Amy Beale who went to South Africa to do good? Yeah, I, I don't, honestly. And well, she's a young uh, I, I must American admit I'm embarrassed uh, to say I do not. Could yeah, you? She, was, uh, she, she went to South Africa to do good. Explain that. Well, she was inv- involved, uh, you know, being involved in the struggle was terribly fashionable and in vogue. And, uh, when would she... this be, Alana? What year? More or less. What's that? What year? When did this occur? Oh, I don't know. I believe that was before 94. I okay. believe that. They're in that time frame. Yes. 
Um, Amy Beale was a lovely young naive American who, um, you know, was was um, hanging out in the townships in the in the townships of South Africa and, and uh, got got torn to pieces by a by a unarmed uh, mob. Um, certainly, me, we can't ask her what what that was like because she's no longer. Just as the let's not forget the eight hundred thousand Tutsis whose whose blood turned the was it the Kigara River, I think turned that river red. Uh, they're all dead at the hands of riled-up African mobs, often unarmed. So let's get a little bit of context to what happened in Marikana without taking sides. Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, and, and what was her... So what was her mission to do good? How was she going to do good? Uh, was she coming from a, from a socialist perspective or, or what? Oh, invariably left liberal, of course. I can't, uh, I don't remember exactly what she was there, uh, doing. Um, I just, she was hanging, hanging out and getting, um, points on her resume so she could become a Fulbright scholar or what have you. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, her parents definitely attended the, the very public, um, trial of the people who tore her to pieces and they accepted the, um, therapeutic explanations to why they had to do this to the, this poor girl. Um, and by the way, I go into the root causes racket in my book, in, in, into the cannibal spot, explaining the, the faulty therapeutic um, explanations whereby uh, we justify uh, these sort of killings. Mm-hmm. So they uh, uh, speedily found it very uh, um, expedient or or maybe this was some sort of misguided Christianity to forgive uh, um, the the Africans who tore this young woman, who only meant well to pieces. Mm. So they were there. So there was no prosecution for that. Oh, there was, but I think the parents uh, gave their uh, permission to forgive. I see. Okay. Yeah, and there's there's nothing like forgiveness for crime to ensure that crime is perpetuated. I, I'm sorry, say that again? There's nothing like um, forgiveness, you know, to ensure, forgiveness without punishment, um, right. to ensure that crime is perpetuated. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a pretty good point. I mean, there's a reason for punishment, uh, to let people know that it doesn't pay. Um, and, and people uh, otherwise... often, often uh, we, we, I know we, we're getting off topic, but people often say that punishment is vindictiveness. No, it's justice. Um, if you could get us an idea, I mean, your book is filled with, uh, it, it talks about violence, uh, growing violence in a post-apartheid era. Uh, it, to be clear, you're not saying there wasn't violence white against black in the uh, in the apartheid era. I didn't get that. Can you repeat well, you're, that? Well, you're, you're, not, you're not suggesting that, that uh, the apartheid era was anything that we should be proud about. Proud of. No, not at all. I'm very critical of it. I just juxtapose the number. Look, ultimately, the individual is only as free as he is able to go about his business um, without the possibility of being killed, um, his property seized, and so on and so forth. So what I do is I juxtapose your ability as an individual during the apartheid era for blacks and whites alike to be able to go about and do their business um, with what is happening now. And your chances of staying alive are very slim, um, given the crime uh, in South Africa. And that's putting it, um, you know, simplistically. Yes, 
you uh, you talked about in your book there was a very interesting concept of um, positive liberty versus uh, uh, negative liberty. I believe is the way you put it. Uh, could you talk to our listeners about that? Um, you want to go into uh, libertarian theology or stay on? Yeah, the... there, there was a positive liberties, and I think you talked about. Yes, um, well, we also live I, under Isaiah Berlin, uh, Sir Isaiah Berlin, the great British political philosopher, pointed out uh, that liberties can be either positive or negative, and I think that you pointed out in your book that uh that you know there's a, there's quite a difference between the two and that the south african post apartheid era was more on the uh, uh on the on the positive side that is positive liberty which means there's a whole bunch of things that that people can do it's not that government is supposed to step back and let people be free uh well i'm know. also very careful to make sure that we understand that the same erosion of of um our negative liberties, namely our right to go about our business unmolested, the government yes. must only enforce our negative liberties, the right to life, liberty, and property. Um, but minting positive rights is a function of the American government, too. Um, but to give you an example of the South African Constitution, which um, Ruth Traitor Ginsburg is touting from the bench, the Supreme Court bench, which he occupies. Um, I am very afraid to go back there because under South African, um, this vaunted constitution, speech that is offensive is prosecutable. I might be prosecuted. I cannot see um, my frail and elderly father and my family mm-hmm. because of these freedoms. Mm-hmm. These newly minted freedoms, and we are fastly progressing to the same kind of uh, concept of, of uh, positive liberty: the right to to uh, health care, a home, um, and so on and so forth. So, the parallels in in the paradigm shift, um, negative versus positive liberty, um, are there. Uh, it certainly seems to be the case, and, and in so many ways, I see the parallels in in the United States. What's going on here with the things you talk about in your book, which is why I think it's it's such an excellent read, because it does uh, pertain to more than South Africa. It's it's uh, a general treatise on 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 human beings and how we behave and how we gain our liberties and why we have them and why we don't. Uh, just to give our listeners some sense, though, I mean, to me, after having read your book. And listen to your speech in New York City a few weeks back, uh, maybe more than that now, a couple of three months back or so. Uh, it, it came as no great surprise when I read the headlines and saw what was going on because uh, the picture of South Africa that I got from you was one of increasing violence in a post-apartheid era. What um, Can you give our listeners just some sense of, statistically, uh, have things gotten a lot worse in the post-apartheid era than during the apartheid era, and could it just be a matter of perhaps not having accurate numbers or having distorted numbers? Yes, I don't have them in front of me. They're all in the book, of course, but, um, you know, the the statistics for uh, this low-grade genocide, which we call labor dispute against the the Afrikaner farmer. Now, Mm -hmm. um, I think murder statistics where I am in in, uh, in suburban... um, Seattle is uh, about five to to a hundred thousand. The South African farmer is the most endangered individual uh, on the planet. Three hundred um, 
individuals per 100,000 are, are killed. That, that statistic, that, that is low-grade genocide um, and so on. I don't have the statistics in front of me, Jay. I thought we were talking about Americana. So yeah, we will get that. to that. And Lana, gladly, my, my apologies. Uh, my engineer is telling me we have to go to a break now, if I'm understanding him. And so when we come back, we'll get back on track with respect to the, uh, to the uh, platinum mine incident and, uh, and the dynamics that underlie that, uh, if we can. Am sure. I asking... My, do we need to go to a break now? Oh, oh, oh no, we still have some time. Okay, sorry, uh, we do have some more minutes, uh, a few more minutes left. Um, uh, okay, so uh, the statistics you do mention in your book, and people can, uh, can read those, and I know that you talked uh, at, at some length about the statistics, and, Yes, I know. I try, I try and simplify them. For, for instance, I would imagine in 40 million, uh, statistics often don't mean much to, to our listeners, but 40 million, 45 million um, inhabitants in South Africa, 18,000 dead, um, murdered, uh, 300,000 since 1994. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's an enormous number of, of people. If you think of us at what, um, 300, how many million uh, are we in, in the U.S.? No, I'm not That's sure what the numbers are now. About 18,000. Um, yeah, it's 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 uh, a lot num- a lot more people. So you're yeah. saying 300,000 murders uh, in that since that time since 300,000 murders since 1994. Population 40 million. Um, about 18,000 per annum, which is what we endure in in this enormous land of ours. In the United States, yes, which is uh, South Africa is the most violent country um, outside a war zone. And what would that, uh, how would that compare then? Do you have any, any notion of how that would compare during the, the apartheid during the period? It era. Excuse me? It was about half that. The, very about hard to half come that. upon okay. statistics, but it was about half that, about 7,000 um, per annum uh, murders um, during the apartheid era. Okay, so the point Actually, I was not half, wanting... Yeah. Wanting to make is that South Africa is a very violent uh, is a very violent place now, and it's not fashionable to talk about that, of course, in the West because we were also keen. Not all of us, but the the politics of our day was so keen towards uh, towards uh, changing the government over there and, and allowing the majority to rule uh, democracy, I guess you call it, or some people call it mobocracy. I do want to ask uh, a, a bit about your father because your father was a, a rabbi who was very active uh, in, in trying to uh, orchestrate justice uh, for the black people, for the minority, for people in general in, in South Africa. And, uh, and, he, and he was an activist before it was fashionable, before it became politically mm-hmm. fashionable in the United States and in the West uh, to, to be concerned about that, right? And, and what, uh, how would have your father gone about things differently what did he propose well, that's a huge topic but i just um you know want to just bring up if i if i can the black on black dynamic again um sure you know because the world is absolutely shocked because here are blacks killing blacks and i think yeah. this has been mentioned quite openly in fox uh, on fox news and so on um and and black on black violence seems to solicit that childish mantra we americans love to repeat they're killing their own people uh, apparently, the beleaguered white minority now living under black rule um, is not considered their people. But in reality, most just just to conceptualize the confusion, um, the confusion confusing discussion on, on statistics. In reality, most murderers of Africans in Africa, also under apartheid, were Africans. Mm-hmm. And similarly, um, 
most murderers of Africans and Americans. In America, are the blacks. In fact, I have a chapter in the book called Africa BC stroke AC, before and after colonialism. Um, and in that chapter, if I recall, with, with respect to the independent, um, independent Africa freed of colonialism, I relate how in desperation, the president, um, I think it was of Sierra Leone, uh, where life expectancy under indigenous rule, which we celebrate, and um, Hillary Clinton was was moving her uh, enormous hip, hula hooping her enormous hips to 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 celebrate. Uh, life expectancy under indigenous rule has dropped to 37 years. Yeah. And that uh, honest politician in Sierra Leone once asked a visiting British politician in the presence of journalists. If please, could he go back to become part of the British Empire again? So yeah. that gives you an, an, an idea of Africa post-colonialism, which we do not like to discuss. And in fact, in my book, Into the Cannibals Part, um, I also cite a very interesting gentleman, Keith Richberg, um, mm-hmm. once a Washington Post, I believe, bureau chief for Africa, and I doubt you'll see him on Anderson Cooper, Keeping Them Dishonest. Um, show, but I cite his work in The Cannibal because it's so fascinating. Of course, he has street cred as an African. Um, he calls Africa post um, um, under indigenous rule as a continent where everywhere black bodies are stacked up like firewood. Mm-hmm. And in South Africa, that never was the case, but now it is the case. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly, Alana, you are... Um most improper when it comes to um, when, it, when it comes to the politically correct uh, views of our day. Uh, that that oh, to yeah, me that is, is very important because um, I believe that you are looking for the truth, and the truth is really what we need to know. Although sometimes it's easier to ignore it and try not to um, and, not, and try to stay away from it. Honestly, it uh, certainly is easier sometimes to bury your head in the sand. We do have to go to a commercial break and this is a hard break now so I don't have any variance on this one uh, when we come back I want to I want to delve more deeply into the dynamics of this South African uh, this problem at the mines and uh, and ask you what the possibilities of of, uh, uh, of the of this continuing and going on uh, and also joining us uh, I think I am going to have Barry Downs with me as well mm-hmm. who was a, a former investor in South Africa during the apartheid days folks don't go away we'll be right back with Alana Mercer and I think Barry Downs as well. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.eurostargold.com for more information. 
Are you tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Network. 